Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we take one more interlude moment before we get to Final Fantasy Tactics to dive into a little bit of philosophy in Final Fantasy, Ira. Always fun when we can bring up names like Plato and Socrates when we're talking about this stuff. And you gotta start, I think, with the allegory of the cave. It's probably one of the most famous anythings in the history of philosophy, pieces of work. Uh, It's definitely foundational in Western philosophy. I was doing, so now as a philosophy major in college to get some of this stuff out of the way, I've read The Allegory of the Cave and Plato's Republic many, many times before. Uh, We're going to do just kind of a brief overview of what that is and how it relates to Final Fantasy, particularly in the recurring motif of the two worlds, but in a lot of different ways that it shows up throughout Final Fantasy. But it's really important to understand this, even I was I was doing some rereading to remind myself, I saw a lot of articles and sort of scholarly essays that start out by suggesting that this is where philosophy begins. And it's where a lot of introductory to philosophy courses in the Western world begin. It's certainly where sure. mine began. Mine too, yep. And it's a great place to start. So if you've never done any philosophy classes before in your life, you can consider this episode at least one. You can say you've taken one now. (laughs) Because this is where most of them, again, in the Western world, start. But there is an entire part of the globe that is far more familiar with the foundational philosophies of Confucius or several people carrying the name of the Buddha. There's a, a great number of foundational, important philosophy that does not begin with the Plato and Socrates logical, argumentative, deductive reasoning model. It's a great model, and I love it, and there's a lot of ways to use it. It's just not the only one. And so that's really important to say up front. (laughs) There's also, it's also worth noting that the Western world, and I'm using air quotes here, Hmm. is kind of a weird sort of Eurocentric way of looking at things because you know if we're just looking at the western hemisphere that includes south america and a lot of uh philosophy that that centers on or originates from south america wouldn't necessarily use this model either right are we going to ignore all of africa that's the biggest continent on the planet right 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 so so yeah so this is a starting place but it's not the only starting place yeah um i want to use one of your favorite tricks and that is allow me the opportunity to rephrase and uh clarify that, yeah, this really is foundational philosophy for Europe and America. <laughs> That's what we're talking right. about here. And in that way, it is very important, and it's important to understand it on that level. But, yeah, 100% correct. Even saying the Western world is a, is a way overreach and a, an ethnocentric thing to say. All of that said, what is the allegory of the cave and why is it so important and foundational? Well, you can understand, right? Because what it really is, is a story about what we don't know. And most philosophy deals in how do we get a better understanding of concepts that we don't know about, that we don't understand. And this is one of the first allegories, analogies that you know, was written down that we still have today that we know about that deals with this idea. The story is very simple. As Plato tells it, 
imagine a group of prisoners, really they can be people, any people who were just chained in a cave and all they can see, there's, you know, there's a fire behind them or some sort of light source behind them. You assume fire, we're making it very simple. And all they can see is shadows cast on the wall of whatever is going on, right? That is the only existence that they know. So they believe these shadows to be real. What, however you define real, that, that word real is something that's going to come up a lot today, right? Mm-hmm. And so in the story, somehow, doesn't matter how, one prisoner gets free and manages to leave what they come to understand is a cave that they've been in this whole time. Not only are the shadows on the wall not things in and of themselves, they were representations of something, but now there's this whole other world that they never would have known existed, right? And then the end of the story is that the person comes back to the cave and tries to take the other prisoners with them, saying, this is not the real world. There is so much more to life than just this cave. And in the original telling of the story, because the first person was blinded by the radiance of the sun that they'd never seen, the prisoners don't go with them because they are afraid of that world, of whatever the, quote, real world, that it might harm them, right? So those are the basic elements of the allegory of the cave. Yeah, I I really like the allegory of the cave. It is, it is a good introductory way of thinking about you don't know what you don't know. You've only got whatever's in front of you, whatever your experience is, and it is the role of teachers, for example, who have hopefully escaped the cave, as it were, right. to, to go back into the cave and say, here is, so you've got your experience, excellent. Here are some other people's experience. Here are experts' experience. And the allegory of the cave can have several layers, right? So, maybe, so the shadows, they think, are the only thing that's real. And then they see, oh, here's what was casting the shadows. That must be what's real. But if those are only puppets, then they're only representations of what's actually outside, right? And like you said, the uh, the character being blinded by whatever the truth might be, there is potentially some danger in truth, but that doesn't mean it's not worth pursuing. And so the, the layer upon layer of opening the world bigger and bigger to just more and more knowledge, more and more experience can lead to a sort of, well, you know, I, I know enough to know I don't know is that that sort of destroys some of my certainty. And is that worth it? Right. Maybe. I mean, I think so. So that's the question at the center of a a lot of these stories. And you'll find more often than not, artists tend to come down on the side of, yes, it is worth it, right? But we'll see that kind of over and over again, that a harsh reality is preferable to a comfortable fiction, right? And that is the kind of debate we'll get to have over and over again. Probably the most famous pop culture media story that really uses this analogy and drives it home and has it at the heart of everything it does is The Matrix. Yeah. This is, it's almost in fact in philosophy courses overtaken the allegory of the cave just because it's a movie that either everyone has seen or we're all at least mostly pretty familiar with. It's so ubiquitous at this point. And The Matrix is the cave, right? The 
unplugging from or the getting to the real world is the the coming out of the cave. They've even got things like the Cypher character in the first one. Minor spoilers if you haven't seen the first Matrix movie, but he wants to go back, right? He has been blinded. The reality is too harsh and too striking for him, and he wants to go back into the cave. Right. Wants to to lose the... uh the clarity and be returned to ignorance because in a way it's, it's more comfortable. It's easier. Right. And, and it almost always is. That's one of the harsh things about it. Another really popular, um, well, I, I wish it was more popular. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And it also uses this as the Truman show. What a great movie. No, I, I used to show that, uh, I, I got to teach science fiction for a couple semesters and, and we watched the Truman show and talked about reality and whether it's, better to stay or to go right and and that really is the question right and again uh, i don't want to spoil the end of the movie but the artists are, are making an argument there but that question of isn't the world he live in truman literally lives in a world that is built entirely around him right around his yeah. comfort around the idea that it's just for you and so to go out into the real world that is not <laughs> right. You know, it, it is a pretty profound question one has to ask themselves. And I, I think final fantasy gets into some of this stuff in some really fun and interesting ways as well. And you know, like we're saying, it, it always comes back to that. You don't know what you don't know. And when given the opportunity to learn, isn't it kind of heroic to face the troubling uncertainty rather than to choose that comfort. Right. To, to question your own, all, all your own assumptions. You know, what if I've been wrong about whatever this whole time? Do I have to change my uh, understanding of how the universe works once I learn about black holes? Do I have to, you know, change my political affiliation if I start to disagree with the leaders of that party? Uh, you know, do I have to reevaluate every story I've ever loved if I find out that some of those stories were written by bigots? That can be hard. And and I have shied away from almost all of those things at certain points in my life. But in general, I do think it's better to have a better understanding. Yeah. So let's get into Final Fantasy then. Does this a lot? And again, almost always comes down on the side of, yeah, more understanding. It's interesting that the very first game in the franchise saves its what's really going on moment for the very, very end of the game. Because for the most part, it's just a straight-up fantasy adventure, right? It's a pretty straight-laced, clear adventure, right up to the end where there's this 2,000-year time loop. It turns out we didn't know, right? It's it's the what did right. you not know. And uh, there's a lot of ambiguity to what people know after the Warriors of Light save the world or at least break the time loop right well it, it's interesting because the allegory of the cave is an allegory right it's a metaphor it's not a literal other world and final fantasy the first final fantasy is also not necessarily a literal other world though the uh the old saying about the past is another country comes to mind right yeah i i like that it is flirting around this area without going to a literal other place right uh just the what did you not know and then it, it does that other thing so so we learn that this there's this 2000 year time loop uh garland goes back in time and 
becomes chaos or, or perhaps has always been chaos and sends the poor fiends forward and that's how they get to send the, the magic of the crystals back and that's the loot uh, which creates the prophecy which creates you know all, all sorts of other shenanigans so we did not know that we were one trapped in a loop and two going to be the ones who break the loop right go out into the sun and then once we do we don't even have the opportunity to come back to the cave to tell everybody right right we don't get to be educators that's it and that's uh you know we talked about do they deserve thanks well maybe but they can't get it right it's sort of the equivalent of the prisoners in the cave having their chains broken by a force they do not see and then just letting them choose or not choose to wander out of the cave (laughs) sure sure without knowing who set them free really interesting stuff like you said though not quite as literal as they would become. And these are still metaphors, but they really do take, starting in the second game, I would argue, this idea of there being two literal different worlds and spaces. I do like the idea, though, of, like you said, deep in the past is another world. 2,000-year time loop. Think about our world 2,000 years ago. That's biblical times. It wouldn't feel, it's kind of like Stargate. Right. When they first go right. back, they think they're on an alien planet. It's like, oh, no, we're just in Egypt thousands of years ago, because how would you tell the difference in certain ways? Unless, you know, you start seeing certain <laughs> artifacts. Yeah. Sure. But well, and, and then for, for another example of that, if we went back to Shakespeare's time and went to the Globe Theater, it would be even just the language. Right. Right? You think Shakespeare's hard to read. Right, right, right. Just yeah. Like if you went to a live performance, that would be also. I mean, you might be able to get used to it because it's still English, but it's a different kind of English. So yeah, in Final Fantasy II, they use uh, a parallel world structure that most, again, in a certain tradition that is very popular in Europe and America, especially. uh, Though certainly uh, Christianity, just throughout the world, using the earth that we have and hell and afterlife, which isn't even, it uses the word from the Christian tradition in hell, but it could just as easily be Hades or any kind of afterlife. That's particularly brutal in its depiction. Right? Sure. And, and I think it's interesting that while our heroes in final fantasy one go back 2000 years, our heroes from final fantasy two don't actually ever go to the other world. They just sort of deal with the consequences of the other world. And is that another world that brings some sort of a clarity, a, a knowing what you didn't know, or is it a thing that is just having a negative influence? Right. So I, I think there you've got a little bit less of a direct analogy for the allegory of the cave and then more starting to do that. Well, there's there's two different worlds. And I guess it's a reveal that, hey, the emperor is summoning demons from hell. That's new. But beyond that, probably not. Right? Yeah, I I, I do think it parallels the allegory of the cave less so i think it's it but it, i think it is interesting that they continue with the multiple realms of existence uh and and start to d- work on and develop that trope in different ways as we go forward yeah i really think it works fantastically in final fantasy 3 as we talked about in those episodes and it, and it happens right at the beginning which is always pretty fun and powerful when you do that where you're kind of exploring this what feels like a very large continent and then you realize oh, it's just this one little spot. And actually most of the existence of this world, this game world, 
is on these floating continents that our characters didn't even know existed. Right. So this is the combination of the two things we just talked about. One, we don't know what we don't know. And two, part of what we don't know is a literal different level of this world, right? We're on the floating continents and the surface world is this maelstrom of chaos. Right. Except for Arya's temple, right? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's pretty cool. And our characters learn a ton. Almost everything they learn from the game, you know, happens when they're on the, the floating continents and, and all of the understanding of, but it is, they do ultimately come back to saving their home, their ground world, the place they're from. So it's, yeah, it, uh, it has that coming back to the cave to set people free moment as well. Final Fantasy IV, a pretty obvious one. And again, spoilers we're going to start to get into here for a lot of these ones, some of them that take place at the end of the game. Though I think everyone knows this one at this point. Just the reveal. It's its one of the best moments in early Final Fantasy when you take the whale boat to the moon. The entire thing is an <laughs> allegory of the cave, right? Our little blue planet is the cave. The whale boat is the, the thing that takes us out of the cave and we discover this whole other plot on the moon and a lot of the status quo that we thought was one thing in this moment turns out to be something else everything from there being people living on the moon to Golbez isn't really a bad guy to he's Cecil's brother to Cecil's half Lunarian like all like everything that we know shifts in this moment and it's so perfectly an allegory for the allegory of the game yeah absolutely and so so there are multiple like so there's the there's the planet and there's the moon but there's also the planet and there's the underground where the uh where the dwarves live and there's the uh the fey march where the summoned monsters live like there are multiple worlds right and i love that and and most of them are connected to our hero's planet but then there's sort of like in the, there's that outsider planet in the moon, the Lunarian's moon. And that's interesting too. And so so one of the things about the allegory of the cave is the chains holding our prisoners so that they can only look at shadows is kind of a, a metaphor for your natural limited experience, especially when you're young, right? But also, I feel like one of the things that Final Fantasy IV introduces is... Now there's this figure that's trying to keep you in the shadows. There's, there's specifically, uh, you know, Zemus is sort of trying to keep the blue planet trapped in its experience long enough that he can take over. Right. And so sometimes the metaphor, the, the chains metaphor is not just your limited experience, but what other people are trying to tell you the actual experience is. Right. Yeah. And that's what makes, and we talked about this at the time, Final Fantasy IV such a great comment on the terrors of imperialism and fascism, and it uses the magical analogy to do so. And some people are like, oh, mind control is such a weak device to let you get out of like certain plot problems, which, okay, fine. Again, you know me, whatever, plot this, plot that, it works for me and I'm fine with it. The important theme that comes through is that if you have a society that is subservient to one person, then that one person's manipulations or ability to be manipulated, their limited understanding of the world, their cave, whatever their cave is, is now a prison for 
all of us if we live in a fascist or dictatorial society. That's all that matters, right? And that's why having these like entire countries being controlled by somebody on the moon isn't just like, oh, that's a cop-out. Like, no, that's a very powerful comment on, it's a magical reason. It's not necessarily something we would see in our real world, but it works as an allegory for why you don't do that. Yeah, yeah. And so they've got to break out of the caves of their little countries, Baron or Mycidia or Troya or whatever, to become to come together as a world. And then, oh, and we've got to work with the dwarves and we've got to work with the Fey March. And actually, we've got to work with the Lunarians also to defeat this one pseudo-fascist uh, alien man. Right. Because if they don't, back to our original question, hey, wouldn't it be better just to live in comfort? Well, in this particular case, the people of the Blue Planet of Final Fantasy IV will be wiped out if they don't face the truth, if they don't come out of the cave. Great stuff there. On to Final Fantasy V, where again we have literal kind of mirror worlds. Yeah, yeah. And I think this one is interesting because long, long ago it was one world. It was split into two worlds to create the void to to trap X-Death, uh, you know, the nature monster of our own making. Right. So what does that do to the allegory, right? Now we've got two separate caves, as it were, and, and coming out of the cave is sort of rejoining the worlds. And not only is it rejoining the worlds so that we have a, a clearer vision of what the world is, but also a clearer vision of what it means when you trap a bunch of evil spirits in a forest. Right. Right. What, what, it, what it means when you have treated the environment so badly. Like, I get that they didn't think they were doing this, right? But they never, the, the, the people of the world, however many hundreds of years ago, didn't necessarily take into account what might happen. Which is an analogy for our kind of energy consumption. I was listening to something. God, I wish I could remember what. It just popped into my mind. And I think it was a celebrity. Doesn't matter. Was some a human being out there. And a thing I was listening to made a great point about how if 100 or 150 years ago, you know, we had realized what mining coal and oil and all this industrialization was doing to the environment, we might not have done it that way. That's one of the reasons things like steampunk fiction exist, right? It's like, oh man, what if we had just known and gone with a different kind of technology? Because, you know, we know now, now there's no excuse for it. But back then, you know, did people really know what they were doing to poison the environment? And that's the same question at the core of Final Fantasy V. And again, giving that magical element of it allows you a little bit of separation and then to eventually realize, oh, this is about us again, isn't it? <laughs> Almost all the stories are, right? Yeah, yeah. So if five is about how we created our own uh, allegorical prison cave with poor treatment of the environment, I think Final Fantasy VI then is the same thing, but with war, right? So right. the 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 warring triad, the warring deities sort of destroy the world, they, they break the world, and then the espers go off and create their own world to protect themselves, and then we've got to rebuild society with steam and, and technology and all that, replacing magic. So it's similar to Final Fantasy V in that we sort of created our own prison caves, our own allegorical caves. Right. And it's, again, the coming together to, to face what happened in the past 
and as Wheel of Time has recently been telling us, try to do it better this time. Right. The allegory of the cave is really shown through the character of Terra in Final Fantasy VI. She is the one who goes through the most. You don't know what you don't know, and she has to discover about herself. And, you know, her moment of first turning into an esper when she doesn't know that's about to happen, again, is a a stark powerful version of being thrust out of the cave. That's not even, you know, the, your chains are cut and you slowly start walking out of the cave. You put your hands over your eyes. You look around. There's not, that's someone just ripped you straight from the wall and threw you in a pool of water or something, right? Like just a complete otherworldly sensation. You know, they don't know our characters at least. And, and we, the audience don't know that the Esper world even exists at that point in time. Or, you know, uh, we just know that they were some people that existed a thousand years ago and they're all gone now. But they're not. (laughs) They're not gone. And so, yeah. And then even from a meta standpoint, there's an interesting, like, bet you didn't think Kefka was going to destroy the world, did you? Right. Yeah. (laughs) To create yet another new world. Right. Uh, Yeah. Big paradigm shift. Yeah. (laughs) I also think it's uh, especially clever that to start our story, Terra goes into a literal cave. Yeah. To find that, you know, like you said, the initial paradigm shift of finding that espers still exist. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. I mean, these games are good. That's why we do the podcast, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so we can talk about it. It's mm-hmm. fun. Final Fantasy Seven has a ton of coming out of the cave moments. It's like, you know, every couple of hours there's a paradigm shift and you're like, oh, this was actually that. Uh, Some of them work less well than others. The cave Sith reveal, you know, obviously the big one being the true nature and history and identity of Cloud Strife. But the two worlds motif is maybe a little more subtle in this one. So they talk about throughout Final Fantasy VII, or or Shinra talks about, I want to go to the promised land. And what is the promised land? And that sort of makes it seem like we're going to this other world. And Aerith is like, "Uh, it's not really what we're talking about. And so... More of an allegory. Right. It's a bit of, yeah, it's kind of a metaphor there, President Shinra. I know you just want to strip mine it, but you can't strip mine a metaphor. (laughs) He's going to (laughs) try. Yeah, he is. So, so I, I think we, you and I have largely come down on the idea that the promised land is about going back to the live stream and just having this, this recurring cycle where life comes and it goes and, and we just sort of exist in it. And so I feel like the, the other world here is the live stream and you can go to it literally. Uh, it's not necessarily good for your body, uh, but it did help Cloud's psyche come back together. Yeah. And I, and I think another, metaphor there then is cloud only comes back because of is only able to come back because of tifa's help and so you know if if jenova is the the one you know pseudo fascist parasitic monster that's trying to only eat things then our heroes uh are you know in becoming one with the planet or in in becoming interconnected amongst themselves they can they can fight against that one right right and I think that's really driven home in all the compilation stuff. Like it, love it, hate it. I mostly love it. There's a lot more of 
what souls in the live stream are kind of doing, right? We see interaction between Zach and Aerith and Cloud a bit in Advent Children, for example. I think we're going to get even more of that in Remake based on the way it ended. That's all I'll say about that for now. But just, yeah, so I just think that the live stream is however ambiguous or literal and it's becoming slightly more literal i think over the years it is the other plane of existence in the final fantasy 7 fiction right final fantasy 8 takes us back to the moon now there's a lot of different ways there is i mean allegory of the cave stuff left and right and how much of final fantasy 8 do we want to spoil right now well, we're doing an interlude. Let's right. just spoil as much as we can remember. Okay. So skip ahead a few minutes if you don't want Final Fantasy VIII <laughs> spoiled for you. The reveal that they were all related to each other as kids in the same orphanage is a big... And a lot of people don't like that moment. We'll debate it when we get there. This isn't really about mm-hmm. if it's good or bad. This conversation is just about the allegory of the cave moment. And there's a lot of that because, again, the, the story about them having to use guardian forces as a way of them being effective child soldiers. Right. And then junctioning and using magic. There is a cost to their power and the cost has been their memories. And there's actually a lot of really cool anime that deals in this area. One of my favorites is a movie called the sky crawlers. That is also about child soldiers with no memory of their past, but they don't really get there coming out of the cave moment and the final fantasy eight characters do. And then so much more of that story is about, okay, what do you do with that? And can you, and then we get into time compression and there's a similar question to final fantasy one of, can you break this time loop? Should you break this time loop? Can you (laughs) like literally, right. Can anyone, um, and then, Like in Final Fantasy IV, you literally go to the moon to drive home the analogy that there's there's also there's the dream world is another two different worlds. Yeah. Even though that stuff really happened. Right. Right. So so we talked about in our memory episode when we were deep into Final Fantasy VII, you know, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want your legacy to be? Uh, and, And that can be like the way we remember certain historical figures. You and I just went uh, with the family to the Molly Brown house. Right. Her name wasn't Molly. Right. The Margaret Brown <laughs> right? house. Yeah. Exactly. So, the, yeah, memory is tricky. And, and we tend to remember historical figures in the way we want to remember them. Does that make it relevatory when you realize that actually Thomas Jefferson owned slaves? Well, I it certainly was for yeah. me. I had to rethink my, you know, what I think of how our country was founded. Right. And and how proud of it I am. So, yeah, memories and dreams and then dreams that turned out to have been real. <laughs> and then there's this weird city that's being hidden right. by some kind of uh, satellite array. And then the moon and then the time and the beginning is the end. Yeah, the reveal of the highly technologically advanced city is another great allegory of the cave moment when you just arrive and it's into what? Is here? Yeah. Or, again, we're spoiling all of Final Fantasy VIII. How about when Sorceress Adia is no longer your enemy and joins your freaking party for a minute? 
Exactly. Yeah. So, so, you know, again, that's, that's revelations about people who we thought we knew. Yeah. Once you know more about a person, are you more inclined to, to have sympathy for them sometimes? Right. And is that okay? I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think it's good to, to be patient with people you don't know whose, whose motivations you don't necessarily know. I think that's good. Yeah. There's so much great stuff in Final Fantasy VIII having to deal with all of this, and, and we'll obviously have to get to it. But it is one of the games that's most steeped in these sort of deep philosophical questions all the time. And I think it, you know, for some people, it, it made it hard to follow some of the plot elements, and I get that. But for me, it, it's just like eating cake all the time. <laughs> Sure. It's just so sure. like, it's like it's kind of like watching The Good Place, which we've talked about a little bit here oh, and there man. on this, which also does some great allegory of the cave stuff. Yeah, every four or five episodes, it seems like there's a new revelation of what's really going on. Right, <laughs> and so yeah. Uh, well, and and like, what do you do when you get where you wanted to go? When, what do you do once you catch the car? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, right, totally. And there's even more of that in Final Fantasy. Nine. As we've said on some recent episodes, this is one that we both very much need to replay and, and dive a little bit deeper into. But there is a big reveal again. I guess if we're, if we're spoiling stuff, we're spoiling stuff. And this one kind of has to be because it comes near the end of the game, the reveal that there are two worlds. Like the, the fact that the two worlds exist, that there is this twin planet that used to exist, I guess, depending on how... The whole thing there. But Gaia and Terra, even being two names that have been regularly used throughout the history of Final Fantasy, two words that mean Earth, uh, they're, they're really doing it on purpose now. <laughs> right, right. Th this is, again, taking the, the metaphor and making it literal. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so, and then we've got the, the fascist figure in Garland, right? right. Trying to control, he's, he's the Zemus character. Right. Uh, trying to control everybody's understanding of how things actually work and using his puppets or, or genomes, right, to move the pieces and, and try to make things better for him. Sometimes, you know, even the fascist character, he's in his own little cave, right? And he wants to, like, in a way, reassemble his cave, like the character from The Matrix. Right. He wants to reassemble his comfort at the expense of everyone else. Exactly. There's also, like with Final Fantasy IV, a big family reveal when you get the second world and the shift into understanding. It also comes with a personal one with the relationship between Zidane and Kuja. Be, and we just talked about with Sorceress Adia. That suddenly is a much, much more complicated situation you know, where before it was just, they're the bad guy and, and we got to end them and we got to put an end to the whole thing. And again, spoiler, spoiler, spoilers for the very end, like very end of Final Fantasy IX is Zanon goes back in there to get him. Yeah. <laughs> get his brother. Yes, he does. Oh. oh, God. It's so good. And then other allegory of the cave reveals, obviously, maybe one of the most famous ones in Final Fantasy history. It comes early on. Vivi learning about the short lifespan of the Black Mages. And it's just... Uh, like, Final Fantasy has done a lot over the years of asking what happens when we die or what our 
lives mean and we've done life stream and we've done spirits within Gaia theory and all of these other things but the VV character and story arc is one of the best I've seen in anything it's just so touching and heartwarming and heartbreaking all at the same time and now we get to Final Fantasy X yeah which is all about this stuff in so many ways. In fact, we've already discussed that when we get to this game, we're spoiling everything that happens at the beginning because there are so many reveals and there's so much more powerful upon a second replay in my mind or once you know, once you've been taken out of the cave to go back in and see the journey of Titus. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> and Yuna and her guardians. And knowing all of what they think is going to happen versus how it's going to go. Oh, man. It's like some of my favorite stories are that way, where they're so much better upon second rewatch. I think of Fight Club. I think of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind think of Ender's Game but Final Fantasy X is probably right at the top of my list of those and so whether you're talking about the reveal about who Titus is or again back to our literal paralleled worlds which are maybe a little bit more subtle but they're there mm-hmm. well so I was going to ask you we, we just talked about in Final Fantasy IX the other world is literal is, is the other world in Final Fantasy X, literal? Um, I'm going to say that it is because you go and visit the far plane and you mm-hmm. talk to people. So I'm going to say that the far plane is the literal other okay. world. But that's not the question you were asking. <laughs> no, no, because we start with Titus. <laughs> we start with in Xanarkin, the other world. And he's got, his, he's got his own other world, right? He's got his own other life. And then he goes to this other world, except... He was never did his other did his world ever exist? Right. Well, his his experiences existed. Right. His memories still exist. Right. His father, his mother, his his uh, life as the star blitzball player. It's all there, and so he wasn't really drawn from the past. He was drawn from a memory of the past, right. or or a dream of the past, which is sort of based on these other characters who we don't get introduced to until Final Fantasy X too. Right. Right. And so how real is he? Well, real enough that we can sort of whistle him back into existence if we try really hard. Yeah. So Final Fantasy X is essentially taking on Plato and Descartes at the same time. And then ultimately making the argument, we'll get much deeper into this when we get to that game, but to skip to the very end that the most important thing is love between people. That's as simply as I can put it. And that the reason that's the most important thing is that it does make Titus real. Like you said, all of those experiences happened. Yuna had all of those feelings... She didn't invent them out of thin air over nothing. 
He exists. And the reason why? Because of his impact on the people he loved and those who loved him. And that's why Final Fantasy X is one of my favorite things that's ever been made. Ever. By anybody. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story. We're not going to be able to talk about it for a while because we've got several games before we get there. So I figured I'd drop that now. That's what these interludes are good for, right? Yeah. This is your occasional reminder that we have not played Final Fantasy XI very much. Not love near the intro. We yeah. talked about that last time. We gave it some yeah. love last episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone would have to educate us on this, and we're getting, you know, we, we've got a few more to get to, so <laughs> let's just jump right into the wonderful world of Ibelis. Yeah, so so shall we, we we've only talked about numbered games so far, uh, so we get to go outside that a little bit here. So on the one hand, Final Fantasy XII. Drew, what do you think about the allegory of the cave and the two worlds idea with Final Fantasy twelve specifically. Yeah, it's mostly got again that kind of afterlife or realm of the the deities where the Lukavi live, right? And they don't really start getting involved in the story from the from the player's standpoint until late in the game. They've always been involved. It's one of those kinds of again, you didn't know what you didn't know that these otherworldly beings have kind of always been at the core of this. And there's a lot in that game about putting history back in the hands of humanity. Again, they're, they're sort of being controlled without their knowledge. And even some of the bad guys are arguing in, in this favor of this, right? Of breaking the chains and letting humanity get outside the cave. While most of our heroes are mostly just concerned with like creating peace in their world and, and returning you know, the rightful heir of the throne and all that stuff. And they don't really get wrapped up in the metaphysical conversation until the final third of the game. Right. Our, our heroes mostly seem to be aiming for stability and survival. Right. Uh, and, and that can be, yeah, I mean, so there is something at odds with like, if you're leaving the cave, and you're insisting that others should try to leave the cave too, then you're sort of advocating for breaking down the system, which can be not only scary from a, a philosophical, personal understanding of the world, but can also be physically dangerous. Right. And and so where do you find that balance? And I think, I think you're right. I think our heroes at the beginning are trying to sort of rewrap themselves in the cave of stability in that, you know, we want our kingdom back. And it's sort of, as the story continues to broaden out, right, we sort of start narrow and go broad. We're looking for greater clarity, not not only of how do we make things better for everybody, but also how do we, you know, unbind ourselves from the shackles of the Lukavi. Right. And that ties directly to Final Fantasy Tactics, right? Initially, we're just, we've got this War of the Lions, which is coming directly after the, I think it's the Hundred Years War or whatever. Uh, and who's who's really the heir to the throne? Uh, and are the people who are claiming to be the heir of the throne actually who they say they are? Um, and, and so, and then there's all the class warfare, right? And so all of that is sort of, remember in Hamlet where they're like so wrapped up 
in their own nonsense yeah, that right. they don't even realize that Fortinbras is coming to town to take over. Right. And and so I feel like that's a lot of what Final Fantasy Tactics is. They're so wrapped up in their own wars that they can't even see outside their cave to, well, actually, we're all being manipulated by these demons with the Zodiac Stones. Right. Similar to the, the Lakavu situation in 12, right? It is interesting, too, because, yeah, even Tactics, it has this much more geographically centered story. Like, right, most Final Fantasy games become global conflicts by the end, right? You're saving the world almost always, sometimes more than one. Um, in, in this case, it really does stay on, like, one continent. Ivalice is a continent. It's not even the entire planet. Uh, but it does still manage to give you that demon world. And there's also, like we talked about, you know, with Final Fantasy 1, the history the deep history of whatever was there before, which is why they've got, you know, guns and stuff and why you can unearth a robot worker eight in that game, right? There's this sense of some ancient, but much more technologically advanced past the remnants of that world still exist in this one. So, yeah. And then yeah. the most interesting version of it, not just in the evil East franchise, but in all of final fantasy, this setup is absolutely fascinating. So in Tactics Advance, our heroes who are in our sort of modern world, not quite modern world, find, uh, you know, in the town of St. Ibelis, find a book, and then by reading the book or playing with the book, they get sent to a storybook version of Ibelis. Yeah. So they don't even really go back in time. They go back to a... Idealize isn't quite the right word, but sort of a, and it's already magical, uh, a different, a storybook version, a different kind of version of things that have happened in the past. And then they get to go on adventures. Yeah. And so it's a, yeah. a literal other world in a way, but it's sort of constructed of memory and magic and maybe a little bit of whimsy. So that's getting back into, you know, the faith coming up with Titus right. and his history. Is it real? It's literally fictional. Right, but it's real to the kids. Right. And arguably, like you said at the beginning, Final Fantasy Tactics Advance might be the only Final Fantasy game that starts in the real world, or is supposed to, or at least some allegory of our real world. So is, is it that? How many allegories deep are we then? <laughs> right, right. And then, so so there is a, a big trope in... Uh, anime right now called isekai which basically means other world or parallel world uh where characters from tokyo uh you know get hit by a truck or are randomly stabbed to death or just die for whatever reason and then get to be you know meet the gods or whatever and then and then get to be reborn in another world and sometimes that world has game uh, you know it's called uh uh what do they call it lit rpg or game lit so you you, you know if you were a gamer back in Tokyo, well, here, you know how games work, and so you can manipulate the system. And the portal fantasies go back all the way to, like, uh, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, or Peter Pan, or Alice in Wonderland, right? right. So, so we've got these various traditions of going to another world, and, and portal fantasies, and isekai, and I think that Tactics Advance is in that tradition, and I think that's really neat. And I think we might be getting it again when we uh, the, those those guys who really want to kill chaos. Right? <laughs> I've only what is the name Stranger of that game? Stranger of Paradise. Be? Stranger of Paradise, right? So is that going to be a sort of isekai uh, portal fantasy story? That'll be interesting. Yeah, Nino Kuni two. 
does that as well. Uh, there's yeah, it's it's a fun genre, another fun version of this type of storytelling. Let's move on now to Final Fantasy Thirteen, which again gives us literal twin worlds. And right there from the very beginning, it's just there's Pulse, there's Cocoon. Here's the relationship between them. Here's where the haves live. There's where the way have-nots and the scary monsters live. And, you know, it, it's, it's a part of the setup. So, in that way, not an allegory of the cave. That comes with a lot of plot reveals and what's really going on. There's still plenty of that. But the twin worlds, just looking at them, first of all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Breathtaking stuff. But it, it is that... We do get a little bit of, oh, well, actually, for both, I was going to say, oh, Pulse wasn't exactly what we thought it was, what it was made out to be. You know, there, there, there's a lot of that with the Twin Worlds. You say the same about Cocoon. Neither one of them are quite what you thought they were or what they were made out to be. And that's an interesting part of it as well. Should I spoil the end of Final Fantasy Third Day? I mean, just again, are we just. I think, yeah, this is a spoiler okay. show. I think that's fair. So the cool interesting inversion of the tropes coming together comes the very end of Final Fantasy 13 when one of the worlds is destroyed and that is the freeing people from the shackles moment where their sort of false faith comes crumbling down in their system of Lassie and, and all this. I'm not going to dive too deep into it. One, because it's way complicated and, and two, because it's not all super relevant, but their system comes crashing down, right? In right. As does the second world. So where oftentimes second planet or, or the moon or, or whatever is an analogy, it symbolizes freedom. In this particular case, the destruction of the twin world symbolizes freedom an interesting inversion yeah and, and there's a lot of class disparity in this one too and we sort of skirted around this idea but to say it a little more plainly sometimes your cave is your own your own privilege right if right. you are privileged enough to live in a you know born to a comfortable you know financially comfortable family that's its own kind of cave and so not knowing uh how much better or how much worse other people have is is also a thing that needs to be learned and it can often be uncomfortable yeah Okay, the following conversation on Final Fantasy XIV is going to be brutally incomplete. <laughs> it's that right. old game's damn fault for being so humongous and wonderful and humongous. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and to be clear, I have not finished the main uh, scenario yet. Yeah. So you're you going to be telling me you this. You finished story. A Realm Reborn. I'm about halfway through Stormblood. And anyone who's played the main storyline quest of Final Fantasy XIV has been listening to this conversation for the first 13 games and gone, yep, that happens in 14. Oh, yep, that happens in 14. Oh, yep, that happens in 14. Ooh, that also happens in 14. <laughs> like, it's what it's <laughs> built on. It all happens. You've got multiple worlds. You've got anything from the different eras and the fact that the world has been broken and remade several times already, including in the opening cinematic of that game, which was the closing cinematic of the last game. Like, even in meta ways, there's 
two worlds of Final Fantasy XIV, the one that no one will ever get to go back and see again that was totally broken. The way expansions work is an interesting way to interpret multiple worlds and, and multiple opportunities at it. There's an astral plane. There's... I don't want to get too spoilery, but like in you know Final Fantasy V, there are warriors of light. There's warriors of dark. They come from different realms. There's, you know, can my realm exist if your realm exists becomes... It's all, it's all of it. It's everything. It all the time. That, that should actually just be the tagline for Final Fantasy XIV. It is everything all of the time. In Final Fantasy XV, we've got some paradigm shifts in Final Fantasy XV, but what do you think about uh, tying it to this particular trope? Yeah, a, a little less, you know, other than like with most of these heroes, going on the hero's journey and learning about themselves and the world around them. So there's plenty that Noct didn't know that he learns. So, you know, you could go with some of that if you wanted to. But, you know, we don't have, we don't go to the moon. We don't have twin right. worlds. There's a little bit of getting to the Empire and it not at all being what you thought it was going to be when you got there. Like, sure. Err. Well, that might be some of that class disparity or like we were talking about the, the individual kingdoms in four, right? They're sort of escaping their own caves. So you might see uh, insomnia and its barrier as a cave, and then you get out to the wider sort of region, and that might be its own cave. Yeah. And then, yeah, and the empire is its own cave. That's sure. the way to look at yeah. it. Yeah. Like with 14 or 7 or 10, there is an astral plane, a far plane, a life stream, uh, a place of the, the dead that we do see, and even again, spoilers, spoilers, at the end, visit and, you know, take place in, like, battles and stuff there. So, you know, clearly there's still some kind of agency going on in their astral plane. But I don't know that any of it is really specifically built around the trope of the two worlds or even the allegory of the cave all that much. It might be one where, you know, unless I'm missing something, they were just a little bit more focused on some other things, which... Sure and, and I do think most of it is just focused on the growth of Noctis and his Warriors of Light. But, but I do think the thing we don't know we don't know is Arden's motivation. Sure. And he's, he's more experiencing the allegory of the cave than anybody else is. Because doing what he does and why and some of his resistance and some of his complicity is... Right is really interesting. And and because this one is still only like three, four years old, we might yeah. hang on to some of that. But yeah, yeah, I, I agree. The Arden's ultimate motivations are the ultimate, what we did not know of the story. All right, let's jump into a little bit more of, I hate calling it side stuff. That sounds so derogatory. Non-numbered, the multiverse. The, the yeah, multiverse. Right. Yeah. The, the Final Fantasy shared multiverse. So... We can't not talk about Kingdom Hearts. I got a double negative on this one. We just can't not. Yeah. Speaking of other worlds, <laughs> there's lots of So many other worlds of it. Like, so the clear and most obvious allegory for the allegory is at the very beginning. It's Destiny Island. Getting off of Destiny Island and realizing, oh, there's all of this other stuff out here. And there's a there's a little cave on Destiny Island with a door yeah, to another a world. Cave, yep. Uh, where where they do all that stuff, and and there's coming back to Destiny Island as a motif to 
free their minds. They don't go back and like get people. There's only the three of them on the island, right? But it's not like they're coming back to save others. But every time that they revisit it, either for real or in their dreams or on a vision or whatever, our characters, usually Sora, but whomever, comes out with a deeper understanding of, quote, what's really going on, which, what's really going on? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's tough to say, and I'm not just being coy. I think it's actually literally difficult to say. I can't, first of all, I don't remember it all. Um, Ansem yeah. and Xehanort and Organization yeah. 13. Um, whew. And then and then I haven't even played three yet, but there, we played that sort of intro with the oh, people yeah, with the colorful know. hoods. And then there's the Keyblade Ward. And are keys like literal keys or is it like key as in your energy? Yeah, there's lots of revelations, but they're not always revelatory. Sometimes they're just more ob- obfuscation. Yeah, right, which is interesting, right? But there is, uh, you know, if, if ever there was a story where you don't go much more than an hour or so without somebody saying, uh-huh. here's what's really going on. Actually, yeah. what you didn't mm-hmm. know. Lots of that, and I eat up most of it. I will admit it gets pretty convoluted at times, but... I have a whole lot of fun with it. And uh, yeah, there's plenty of stuff, whether you're talking about all the different Disney worlds that you literally go and visit, or Kingdom Hearts itself, like what is it? And and the mm-hmm. door to the light, the door to the dark, the, the dark realm, the, all that, yeah, it's all over Kingdom Hearts. And so our characters are constantly being pulled out of their cave and into a whole new reality that they didn't know or think about or understand before. And they're constantly visiting other worlds. So yeah, it's pretty, it, it's a constant allegory of the cave are those games. Drew, how much of World of Final Fantasy have you oh, played? Gosh, probably a third of it, maybe a half. Okay. Yeah. So we will avoid spoilers on this one because you have not played the whole thing. And this one's also still within the last three, four years. So if you're like me and you don't, get to play games near as much as you used to. Right. But yeah, there it has its sort of pseudo Traverse Town. It's not Traverse Town from Kingdom Hearts, but there's this sort of hub world that is not the real version of that world. And then they go out into the real world and, and there are constant revelations because our heroes have lost their memories. So sometimes the allegory of the cave is about what you can remember, right? Sometimes that's your narrow experience. Um, and so learning who Luz Varna is and you know, who who are these people we see in visions? And what about the prophecy? Uh, and what was, you know, what did we really do? Are we really responsible for some of this, any of this, all of this? And all of that. Oh, and Tama's role in everything. And and Anna Crow's role in everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's it is again, it's it's a lot like Kingdom Hearts in that way, where you, the whole thing is a revelation about what what is really going on and then what do we do about it because last time we tried to do something about it we may well have screwed this whole right. thing up so what is our responsibility and when when you talk about in the allegory of the cave the responsibility of the person who le- who who got out is to then go back in like that's how i feel about being a teacher in some ways not that i'm this all knowing whatever you know not that i'm the most wise the most qualified the most whatever Gallif. but i do think <laughs> right all right are you comparing me to golf i think i did i think that's what just happened yeah uh, that that might be a compliment 
but but there is there is some amount of responsibility from time to time, not all the time, that would be exhausting, but to helping others gain a better understanding of a shared experience is, I think, important. And so and so taking an active hand in, right? When, once you have a better understanding, it's it's that that quote I've been thinking about a lot lately. We do the best we can until we know better, and then we do better. Yeah. I do want to touch a bit on Crystal Chronicles. It is a shorter, simpler game, but as we talked about in the memory episode, at least I think we did. I can't quite remember. Uh-huh. Uh, memory of of what happened to this world and why it is the way now, the way it is, the way it is, uh, with the mist covering everything, and you got to have myrrh and you got to collect the myrrh. So each individual town uh, and even the big kingdom are their own pockets of experience, and it's a relatively narrow experience. And only the people who go out on caravans are. It's not even escaping the cave, but they're leaving the cave. And they're leaving the cave with the blessing of and the hopes of the the town where that they're leaving, right? And so that's a different take on the allegory of the cave because people know that there's more outside, but they also know that outside is dangerous. So only those who are prepared to go outside and learn more can or even should, right. which is an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, and you also reminded me that in both Crystal Chronicles and Final Fantasy IX, the mist and the lifting of the mist is another allegory for the allegory. And finally, let's wrap up talking about the Chrono games. With Chrono Trigger, there really isn't a ton other than the ultimate early reveal that, hey, you can time travel and time travel exists, which, if you know what the word chrono means you probably feel like right. most people who bought the game knew that was going to be a part of it right right and, and there are some well like we talked about the past is another country right and when you go to different times it's it's kind of another world yeah well certainly the world of 65 million bc is not the same as the world of 680 or 2300 ad right these are all very very different places so well, and the kingdom of zeal yeah true that, and that may be the biggest one during the course of the plot the biggest sort of reveal of what you did not know um lavos and, and even some of the stuff about magus that's another big one the kind of red herring you think he's going to be the bad guy or at least one of the big bad guys and it turns out he's been trying to stop lavos this whole time you know so stuff like that but i think i think yeah the kingdom of zeal when you get to that and you know right away like wait this is 1200 years ago 12,000 years ago and there's this floating technologically advanced society what happened to these people <laughs> some media thing I was watching uh, Mandersnatch on Twitch everyone should check her out she's fantastic and she's been playing Chrono Trigger her first time playing Chrono Trigger she's a huge Final Fantasy cool. fan and seeing her reaction stuff cool. and she just got to zeal and she was like what it, it has that coming out of the cave moment even all these years later for a first time player of I had no idea this was going to happen and the other thing that she just did she said I can't believe in all these years that was never spoiled for me but again spoilers she got to the part where Chrono dies yeah and that's a big paradigm shift WTF yeah can we do this without Chrono would we ever have expected to do this without Chrono yeah yeah. And then 
the rabbit hole goes even deeper, or, or maybe the cave is longer than we thought trying to get out of it, because then there is an event that will happen in this world that splits the worlds. Yeah. So, uh, it, okay, pronunciation time. Yeah. Sergey or Serge? Serge, I think. Okay. Yeah. Even though Pasha clearly says Sergey Poo. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you should face it on. But I know. Was, I, I, did, I didn't know when we were kids at all how to pronounce this name, but the more I've seen videos of people writing about it, most people go with Serge, so okay. And and fair enough. And that, that sort of keeps with our sort of natural names, natural phenomenon names for Final Fantasy heroes. Right. And so as a child, he is mauled to death by a giant cat or not, and then that is the catalyst for creating literally two worlds. And what you don't know, you don't know. So if you put a scar on time, Chrono and Friends, uh, which we've talked about before, sometimes there are unintended consequences, Superman and Man of Steel. Right. Right, so those unintended consequences are part of what you don't know you don't know. And can you ever escape that particular cave? Right. So one of the reasons why I've always loved Chrono Cross and it's always been very near and dear to my heart, but I only ever like played it twice and now you can't unless you've got a PS3 and you go through a whole series of things. I'm really hoping rumors about remasters and all this stuff and I really hope somehow just so that we can play it again, we get this game, but there is this sort of melancholy that drips over the entire thing <laughs> because at the center of it is that question, like you experience this other world, literally again, another world. At the very beginning of the game, you're transported to a parallel universe. It's much like the one that Surge is from, but a lot of things are different. Not everything's better, not everything's worse, like, like it would be, right? There are some people who've got it worse off. There are some people in this world who have it much better off, who, who have right. much better lives. And is that somehow in some weird butterfly effect way related to the fact that you don't exist in that world so while the matrix and the truman show and most final fantasy games zidane going into the cave to save kuja and pull him out tifa going to get cloud bring him out they have that argument we talked about the comfort of ignorance is not better than the harshness of reality chrono cross puts that that all them cards right on the table what if you never existing or, or really never existed being killed as a child made the world dramatically better for a lot of people i mean just ask yourself that what the hell? What, what do you mean? But you not, and you've experienced that world. You've lived in that world for a lot of the game. You've met friends. Some of these people you you care about. What a what a and there's so much else going on in Chrono Cross. There's plenty. There's like seventy five characters, whatever there are in that game. And there's a, and then we have of course literal parallel worlds. But that that question is so ambiguously asked and never really. You know, you do you do literally fight against fate in that game, so mm -hmm. they have a moment where they say, No, free will is good, and, and they still come down on the side of free will is good, 
choices matter, consequences matter, things are important, but boy does it not give you any kind of easy answer to some of the, the moral questions at its center. It just kind of leaves you with them. Sure. Not unlike Final Fantasy VII, right? right? There, There is no, we don't put the worlds back together like in five. Right. And I'm not sure we would want to necessarily. It's kind of like Iron Man's line from Endgame, you know, get back what we lost, but I can't lose what I've gained in the last right. five years. That's part of it too. Like if, you know, if, if I go to a parallel world and it turns out that I died when I was two or whatever, and whatever else was better than like, it's, I don't get to say no necessarily. Right. right. Try to fix that somehow, even if you have right. some sort of weird magical power to be able to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. So I wanted to close with this thought because while we've searched for some of the most literal and sort of magical and ambiguous ways in which the allegory of the cave is used throughout the Final Fantasy multiverse, one of the things that we've talked about, just the way they tell their stories and why they mean so much to us and a meta conversation, a through line from Final Fantasy to Final Fantasy. Why is six in a steampunk world, seven is in a diesel punk world, and eight is an anime space opera. Why do that? And why is every game basically an experience of what's around the next proverbial corner? In other words, what am I going to see when I walk out of the next cave? And it's because they cannot get enough of this stuff. And it's at the core of fantasy storytelling and speculative fiction and science fiction. What don't we know? What could we know is the next question. And then we get to start speculating about fuzzy moogle critters and chocobos and floating cities and continents and twin planets and going to the moon and discovering life there. And as a meta comment on all of Final Fantasy, that's what we come to it for. Show me something I've never seen before. Take me to another world. Us, the player, by stepping into the game world of Final Fantasy, we are expanding our horizons. We are expanding our understanding of the world. You and I, as people who grew up in the United States of America, playing these games made largely by Japanese people, experiencing another culture, expanding our cave that way, right? Or, or coming out of our cave of just our own culture to experience someone else's. Someone else's ideology that maybe we would not have otherwise been exposed to. A piece of music we might otherwise never have heard. A character design, a story metaphor. So Final Fantasy itself, sitting down and playing a Final Fantasy game, is in a way taking that step out of the cave.